And open your Bibles, please, to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Taking a week off from timeless questions from the Psalms to consider the Reformation. We'll be looking this morning in Romans 1 in Habakkuk 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and also, of course, in Genesis 15. Romans 1, verse 16. This is the Word of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, indeed, your kingdom is forever and your word is forever. What a mighty God you are for us. And so, Father, this morning as we look at familiar passages of Scripture, we pray for your Spirit's help to grasp what you're saying to us as the church in the 21st century. Father, to look to be a time for reformation and revival once again for your people. So help us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two great battles going on today. One is the battle for the soul of our nation, founded on Christian ethics and Judeo-Christian principles. Our nation has had a shared commitment to reality-based truth. In our postmodern world, we've tossed away uh, belief in absolute truth and suggest that anything goes as long as it feels right at the moment. Without a shared concept of truth, instead of being a moral people, we become apathetic about morality, we cease to care, and we've lost the concept of sin and shame. We've forgotten how to repent because, indeed, we have forgotten what sin is. And so we have to come to grips with a change in reality in, our, in, in this world. And that is, even as the printing press changed the world forever in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, computer technology has changed our world as well. It's brought about a new explosion of access to knowledge, but the result is not wisdom or shared truth. It's brought about an Orwellian desire for the so-called elite to arbitrarily control what they see to be true. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said recently about her government, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. It's no wonder there's a, a general frustration about the direction of our nation and anxiety and uncertainty about our future in a very global world. And that brings us to the second great battle uh, and what really commands our attention today. This is a critical moment for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a moment in history, in our nation, indeed in our world, uh, when uh, we desperately need salt and light because it's dark and the world is decaying. The trouble is that while there are parts of the church of Jesus Christ that are strong and vigorous, and indeed the church is making progress in the completion of the ongoing ministry of Jesus to the ends of the earth, what we call the Great Commission, a great deal of the problem we face is a weak and insipid church that fails to be salt and light 
instead is more and more introspective and self-centered and or trying to be as much like the world as we possibly can be. The last century seen the church move away from its commitment to Scripture as absolute truth and from preaching that proclaims that truth. The Bible is for many a seldom studied book. Churches are becoming arenas for people to experience God and watch worship rather than engage in our hearts and our minds in the worship of the triune God. There's a greater focus on human feelings than on divine attributes. And indeed, we've moved backward, back to the days before the Reformation, the days before people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox called for reform in the church according to the Word of God. Why was that call made 504 years ago today when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg? Well, it was nailed because no one was reading the Word of God. The church was forbidding individuals to translate God's Word into the language of the people. And such people were martyred like John Wycliffe in England and, and John Huss in Prague. The church was not being educated on how to walk with God. The church was not allowing the congregation to participate in worship. They were instead called to watch and to be spectators. The church had lost the way of salvation. Instead of being forgiven of our sin by placing our trust in Jesus Christ, people were led astray by encouraging them to buy forgiveness of sins through what were called indulgences. It's those things that, that stirred Luther, Calvin, and Knox as God raised up men and women to lead the Reformation. And today we first must acknowledge that the battle we face is a spiritual one. It is not political. Second, we must acknowledge that the greatest need of our nation is that for God to revive His church and empower the church to reform herself in accordance with God's Word. 504 years after the first Reformation, it's time for a 21st century Reformation, a time for spiritual renewal and revival. Our great need is for God to raise up people as He's done throughout history. So this morning we're going to look at, briefly at three leaders from the Bible that God raised up. Abraham, Habakkuk, Paul. Three of the most fearless people in all of history. It's a look back for us because our last three sermon series have been what? Abraham and Sarah, Habakkuk, and Paul in his letter to the Colossians. And God called each of them to the forefront at key points of crisis in the history of redemption and in the history of the world. So as we look at them, I want you to keep three convictions in mind that these men shared in common. One is that God speaks authoritatively through His Word. Second, God saves by grace. And third, God sovereignly rules His world. So the question for us is twofold. What's the 21st century church to do? And what are we as individuals to do? Are we being raised up to make a difference like Habakkuk and Abraham and Paul, like Luther and Calvin and Knox? Are our children, our students? Let's go to the text and see. First, turn back to Genesis 15. 
Genesis 15. Uh, we want to review Abraham's day there. Uh, it's the 20th, 20th century B.C., Ur and Canaan. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram, Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, Him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham is 75 years old. He's well entrenched in the life of the city of Ur. He and his family worship the moon god. Ur's prosperous at that point in history. As we studied Abraham and Sarah, we, we saw that their world was a lot like our own. There was a lot of uncertainty, and immorality was rampant. A Tower of Babel mentality was the dominant worldview. Uh, chaos came from the drive for power that the kings of the various city-states all had. We see that in Genesis 14 when they invade the cities of Canaan and take Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot captive. Uh, Abraham has to organize an army to pursue them. We know from Genesis 19 that it's a world of rampant sexual morality as we read about Lot's life in the city of Sodom. And as, as wicked as that place was, God said the sin of Canaan had not yet reached its fullness. Uh, that was going to have to wait another 500 years till judgment would come through the conquest led by Joshua. It's against that backdrop that God calls Abraham out of Ur out of this Tower of Babel worldview that says we can reach heaven on our own efforts. And God promises to make him into a great nation. But there's one glaring problem. Abraham and Sarah have no children. And when he reminds God of that, God takes him outside and gives him an astronomy lesson. The midnight blue sky is full of twinkling stars and too many to count. And then God tells Abraham, you will have more descendants than there are stars. Pretty amazing promise to an 80-year-old man with a 70-year-old wife. And that's why Abraham's response is so amazing. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Friends, that's an amazing verse. And it's not just the backdrop of the Reformation, but our salvation. Abraham is declared to be right with God by believing the promises of God, trusting the Word of God. Abraham is accepted by God, not because uh, he's earned anything, but because of the gospel of grace. God gives his riches at the expense of Jesus Christ. Abraham saved in the same way we are. By believing the promises of God. Abraham looked forward to those promises. We look back to their fulfillment. And the key question is, well, well, how did Abraham live out his faith? What difference did the gospel make in his everyday life? See, because the gospel truth that God gives salvation, Abraham knows he does not earn it. Rather accepted by God, Abraham is now free to serve God 
Not because he has to, but because he wants to. Uh, Because of all that God's promised to be for him in Jesus Christ. Look at the promise again in verse 1. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield, perhaps your benefactor. Your reward shall be very great. Then verse 7, I am the Lord God who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So how does this impact Abraham's life? Let's just quickly review. We remember that when he was dividing up the land that Abraham gave up his right to the first choice to Lot. And he does not then move to spiritually dangerous Sodom. He goes to war to pursue justice when Lot's taken captive. He intercedes for a fallen world. When he learns ahead of time that God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he prays for them. When Abimelech needs to be interceded for, Abraham steps up and prays. And despite God's promise taking 25 years to come to pass, Abraham waits. He waits. And yes, he stumbles Uh, sins along the way. But you see, that doesn't qualify him for the promises of God because it's all by grace. God always moves him to repentance. And that's God's grace. That's the gospel. He trusts God when God says, sacrifice Isaac, because Abraham believes in the resurrection. The writer of Hebrews tells us that because of his faith, Abraham kept his eye on heaven. Hebrews 11, verse 9 By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Why is that? It's because he and Sarah trusted God. They believed the promises of God. Hebrews 11, 11 makes it clear. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Friends, Abraham and Sarah lived out what they believed. They daily applied the gospel to their lives, reminding them of God's grace towards them. And being saved by faith alone, made them people God could and would use for His glory. That brings us to Habakkuk's day at the end of the 7th century B.C. Uh, The late 7th century brought a a turnover in world power. Assyria, which had been dominant for over a century, is in decline. Egypt is trying to flex her uh, considerable military might, but it's Babylon that ultimately will become the world power. Habakkuk's contemporary, Jeremiah, gives us an idea of of life in the late 7th century uh, when he writes in Jeremiah 5, verse 26, about about 15 years before Jeremiah spoke. Here's what Jeremiah wrote. Wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord. Shall I not avenge myself 
on a nation such as this one. So Habakkuk, he knows what Jeremiah wrote. And so he says this in Habakkuk 1. You're going to want to turn there now. Habakkuk 1, verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? In other words, he looks at the state of affairs in his nation. He says, God, do something. Uh, pick it up in verse 2. Why? I cry, to you, I cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Their world was much like ours. A society with a bent towards violence, injustice, conflict, and war. That's why Habakkuk pleads, do something, God. And so God says, I will. So what's his plan? Pick it up in verse 6. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verse 9, they all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. Verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God's answer is to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And they become the new international bad guys. They sound plenty scary. God makes a sober analysis that their strength is their own God. The Babylonians do not lack confidence. So how does Habakkuk respond? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, Lord. You've ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Basically, God, I know there's a lot of evil in our society, but how could you make somebody even more evil take over? I mean, the Chinese government's far more godless and immoral than ours is, right? The fact that Habakkuk challenges God causes him to, to step back and wait. So go to 2.1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk knows God speaks with authority. He knows God's the sovereign king directing history. He wants to hear what he has to say. So God says that his, his response is so significant that it needs to be written down so large on a banner that people running by can read it. It's a message that will be unfolded with time, but it's worth waiting on. And so what's that tremendous truth message? Verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Simply put, in a world dominated by, by violent and sinful people, God gives a theological answer and reaffirms what he told Abraham. The righteous will live by faith. See, Habakkuk had been evaluating everybody in their performance. 
And the thing is, by that standard, by what we do, everybody fails. So God's saying, no. It's all about grace. It's all about placing our trust in Him. We obtain a right standing by our faith in God. God accepts us on the basis of faith in His Word, not by what we do. So how did Habakkuk live out his faith? How did he daily apply the gospel to his life? Well, for one thing, he believes the promises and looks to the future. Turn over to 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <coughs> he clings to the secure truth of God's sovereignty and timing. Verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. He actively prays for revival, for God to be at work changing hearts. 3-2, O oh Lord, I've heard the report of You, and Your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And one last lesson is that Habakkuk is trapped by his obsession with uh, difficult circumstances and challenges, with the daily news, if you will, by his nation's rebellion. Maybe we are too. But God's teaching him, do not look at the circumstances that surround us. Do not walk by sight, if you will, but look to God. Walk by faith. Do you remember the incredible... Faith that drips from his words in 3, 17 through 19, that we affirmed week after week just a little over a year ago. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord's my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Friends, Habakkuk lived out what he believed. He lived out his faith. He might not have thought that his ministry had, had a whole lot of impact, given the, what happened. Uh, but he has touched millions through this book across the years. Finally, our attention goes to Paul. It's the first century Jerusalem and Rome. We know about Paul's day. It's a time of great moral decline. But it's also the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. The gods the Romans worship are not moral gods. And people always become like the God that they worship. Romans 1.21 gives us that classic description of a sin-gripped culture. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They can be futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he outlines the impact of that, the difference that it made, and you can read that. It's a world that sounds so much like our own, 
And so what's the answer? Keep in mind, Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. What he says is that his desire is to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to them. The gospel is not only what saves us again, it's the something we need every day. In the midst of a sin-drenched world, the gospel is a daily reminder that God accepts us. Not because we're such good performers, but because He saved us by His grace. The gospel displays the love of God and the power of God as He justifies us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous will live by faith. See, faith's important because if it's about faith, faith in Jesus, then my eternal security, it's not about me. It's about what God's done for us. Faith's about His work on our behalf, not what we do for God. And it's, the encouragement is that this faith frees us to be transformed by God, working in us as we see in Romans 12. See, Paul lived out what he believed. He applied the gospel to his life. He daily repented of sin. He daily affirmed his trust in Jesus as his Savior. And the result was he could describe his life in these terms in his very last letter, 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I, until that day what I have been entrusted has been entrusted to me. He's not looking at himself. His eye of faith is fixed on Jesus and Jesus alone. He said, that's why God uses him, Abraham, Habakkuk, so greatly for his glory. So what about us? The question is really twofold. What's a church to do? What's an individual to do? We could throw up our hands and withdraw from a hurting world. Or we could weep. Are our hearts broken? Do we practice reformation of our own lives, examine our lives to be sure the gospel is doing its daily work so that we're not conforming to the world but being transformed by the gospel? Do we pray and ask God to pour out His Spirit and bring revival? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out that the key to Reformation in the 16th century was God raising up godly men and women. And he writes this, God knows what he's doing. Look at the gifts he gave John Knox as a natural man. Look at the mind he gave to Calvin and the training he gave him as a lawyer to prepare him for his great work. Look at Martin Luther, that volcano of a man. God preparing his people in the different nations and countries. Of course, even before he produced them, he had been preparing the way for them. See, knowing God sovereignly rules and guides our history, our prayer that what God did with, with all the saints before us, with Abraham, Habakkuk, and Paul, and with Luther and Calvin and Knox, that we pray that God will do it again. And so we must be always reforming the scriptures, or rather the church according to the scriptures, maintaining doctrinal and mission integrity, always reforming our lives according to his word so that we can reflect God to a watching world. 
So to do this, we need to hold on to those three convictions that Abraham, Habakkuk, and Paul had. One, that God speaks authoritatively. We need to turn to His Word. Two, God saves by grace. That frees us to love and serve Him. And three, God sovereignly rules. By His providence, all things are working together for the good of those who love Him. Indeed, a mighty fortress is our God. So given those convictions, may God embolden us by His Spirit to serve and bring reformation collectively and individually. And may we be a Spirit-revived church that's producing people uh, that are salt and light in a dark and decaying world. Abraham's and Habakkuk's and Paul's for the 21st century, daily applying the gospel. May not be in ways that make the headlines, uh, but as we live gospel-transformed lives and share the love of Christ in word and deed, uh, we pray that God will pour out a spirit of revival uh, on the 21st century church bringing revival and reformation, and he'll begin here. May our prayer be, O church, arise. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for all those who have gone before us. Father, men and women, godly men and women, not perfect men and women, but men and women transformed by your grace into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, if you use them for your glory. Father, may you do it again in our day. Father, may you pour out a spirit of revival and bring about reformation so that the church of Jesus Christ is the salt and light you called us to be in this world. And Father, is anybody here that doesn't know the joy of belonging to Jesus Christ and what it is to be saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone? Father, today, Father, today, Show them your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.